to the New Testament. We are at Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, the text for this morning is Acts 17, verses 30 to 34. I'll begin reading from Acts chapter 17, from verse 16 through verse 34. This also is God's holy word. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with them. And some said, what does this idol babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is not actually far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with him. May we go to our God and ask for his blessings on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. Our compassionate Father, we thank you for you have given us your word. You have shown us uh, the true and the living way through Jesus Christ, who is our risen Savior. We thank you, Father, that he is our only hope for eternal life. He is our only hope for forgiveness of sins. He is our only hope for glory. Father, we thank you that you gave and you gave exceedingly generously. You've given us your son. We thank you also for you've given us your Holy Spirit. It is only by him that we might repent and forsake our sinful ways. Father, we thank you for you have given us the very best. 
We pray, Father, if any are here who have not committed their lives to Jesus Christ, we pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would do a mighty work of converting. Father, we pray that we would break down these idols that we worship and instead that we would follow Jesus Christ. And we pray, Father, that your son Jesus would be exalted, that your servant would be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Here we have in this passage, Acts 17. This is often referred to as the classic text. Here you have Paul, an educated Jew. Uh, he would have considered, been considered a, a PhD. Let's just call him a PhD in Judaism and a PhD in, in Christianity. So he, he was a scholar. And how, how does he meet uh, the Gentile? Because if anything, an Athenian, a Greek, is about as Gentile as you can get. So where does he start talking to a, a foreigner, someone who doesn't understand the teachings of God's word. Back then, it would have been the Old Testament. They didn't, they didn't read the Old Testament, these Greeks. They were engrossed in their philosophies, the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers, those they understood, those they knew. How does he start with them? Where does he begin? What does that interface look like? Well, here we have uh, this test case. This is the model case that we have that uh, so many things that he brings up with them in, in his sermon. And, and we can assume that, that this was merely a summary. You think about uh, Luke, he, he merely presented a summary of what the Apostle Paul preached. I don't think his, his sermon could have been summarized in, in three or five minutes. No, that he would have spoken to them. And he commanded them to repent as God has commanded. He spoke about the resurrection throughout the book of Acts, throughout the New Testament. If you take out the resurrection, you've completely destroyed the Christian religion. Jesus was raised from the grave. And because you and I are trusting in him, his perfect righteousness, his perfect sacrifice, that resurrection for him was proof that he had no sin and was a sufficient savior for you and for me. If you take out the resurrection, then we have no faith. Our faith is in nothing. Here we see that for these Gentiles, he was presenting to them also the same hope, the hope of the resurrection. And that for, for them, we're told that this resurrection was proof that God had fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. And it was by this man, Jesus, whom he raised from the dead. So we see in this passage that God commands all people to repent for he has appointed the resurrected Christ as judge on the last day. God commanded all people to repent. For he has appointed the resurrected Christ as judge on the last day. We'll look at this in four points. The first, required repentance. Second, a righteous reckoning. Third, resurrected ruler. And fourth, regular responses. The first point required repentance in verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Here we, we think about Athens and how Paul ended up there. It had something to do with uh, the, the Jews uh, coming from Thessalonica after him. That he was, the apostle Paul was pushed from one place to another and, and certain Jews were coming after him. He, he went to another town, but those Jews followed him and were pushing him again. And each time, 
the brethren, the Christians, were saying, Paul, you got you got to go. And this time they, they put him on a ship and they tried to get him far so that he ended up in Athens. So he was, I, I imagine he was supposed to be there waiting to meet some other people. And he was in the marketplace. He figured, hey, I, I should at least do a little sightseeing, you know, understanding the people. And you would think that he was on a missionary journey. This was the second missionary journey. He would have wanted to bear witness of this good news. Here, we're told that um, in verse 16, that his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. We can think about how this provoking would be. It, was a, wasn't a sim, it wasn't similar to the provoking he had when he was still a Jew. He wasn't provoked, meaning that he was looking down on these Gentiles as unclean dogs. Rather, he was provoked because here he witnessed people who were walking in darkness. Here, this is a reminder to you and to me. The offense is never against you. The offense is against God. You look at the life of Samuel. Was it First Samuel? that he goes to God saying, hey, listen, uh, your people, they've, they've rejected me as their, as, as, uh, their messenger, as, as their prophet, and, and they've asked for this king instead. And, and God assures them, no, Samuel, they didn't reject you. They rejected me as God. And, and here, so also, when we look around, we, we think about these people, they're, they're rejecting our message. No, they're not rejecting our message. We're merely the messengers. They're rejecting the great king. They're rejecting God himself. Here, Paul was not personally offended by the, the rampant idolatry in Athens. Rather, he was jealous for God's glory. This is a reminder to you and to me that it's an offense to God, not offense to us. Here, the apostle Paul spells it out as what, is, as what it really is. The worship of false gods, the worship of idols, is in reality the worship of demons. 1 Corinthians 10.20 No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. And this is how, you know, we've been studying in Ephesians and uh, the Satan and his minions that our enemies are not flesh and blood. That Satan desires... Uh, in any way, at any time, in any possible circumstance, to direct glory and worship and focus away from God. So if ever he could get you just a detour by, by one minute of a degree away from God, that's, that's good. And if he can get you to detour uh, a little more, even better. Here we, we think about how in our culture it's easy to look and say, oh, well, those people... They worship these idols called Zeus or Hermes. You understand that in our culture, Satan works things differently. The idols don't have proper names. They have common names like wealth, like selfishness, uh, like your self-esteem, uh, your reputation, uh, your comfort, your ease. We do have idols here. They're just not the same names. They're different idols. Here, we look at what happened regarding Paul, that he was provoked, but his provocation did not motivate him to despise these Athenians. It motivated him to action, to speak to them, to speak to them about the hope of the gospel. Here, you think about what would it have looked like 
if it was merely a sense of pride and self-exaltation. Paul would have isolated himself from the Athenians. He would have said, you know what, I need to go to a place and hide. I, I need to go find a hotel room and, and you know, hop on the big screen and just watch TV because all these people are all condemned. It's a lost cause. Perhaps he would have spent time uh, speaking to them to mock them, to insult them. But he doesn't do either one of those things. Instead, he was provoked, and his desire was that he would see Gentiles, sinners, come to faith in Jesus Christ. He was trying to point them to something better. Here, he remembers that our God desires worshipers. John 4, 23, that God desires worshipers, those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. He doesn't have a give-up attitude. He doesn't condemn them. He doesn't despise them. He sees that we have received the Great Commission. Our desire should be that sinners, those who walk in darkness, would see the great light, that others would also worship our Lord Jesus Christ alongside of us. Here, we have what Paul did. He, he went first to the synagogues. You look at the account in Acts, that the apostles, they went first to the new town, and they went to the synagogue to try to talk to the Jews. And then along with the Jews, uh, here this version mentions uh, devout persons, but other versions will say that these were uh, God-fearing Gentiles. For those who would have uh, followed the Old Testament, that they, they would have been outsiders in the Jewish synagogue because they were still Gentiles, uh, though they were those who feared God. And what they were waiting for was the hope of the resurrection and the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, having all of the fulfillments of their coming Messiah having come in Jesus. So this message would have been, oh, this is who we were waiting for. Oh, all the Old Testament was pointing ahead to Jesus who had come, and now he came. He died, and he was raised again. So he spoke to the Jews, and oftentimes what happened as he addressed the Jews, the Jews would then begin to blaspheme, and they would throw him out, and then he would say, okay, that's it. I'm going on to the Gentiles. So in this town, he would go to the Jews, speak to them, this Jesus is the one that all of the Old Testament had been pointing ahead to. Worship him. And some of them believed, and uh, many of them, they rejected it, and off he went. And so also, after this, he, he went on to the marketplace. This is where the exchange of ideas happened. That, uh, verse 21, Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. That they would spend hours, kind of like our people, some of us, hopefully not, spend hours just watching uh, the, uh, the TV. Well, they would spend hours sitting in these Stadiums listening to people uh, lecture and talk about rhetoric and philosophy. You think about it, this whole matter of telling or hearing something new is, is novelty. They were looking for novelty. And what better thing to dwell upon to believe than the gospel of Jesus Christ? That the Apostle Paul in the marketplace spoke to them about this good news. His good news, which is your good news as well. Now, we think about what happened. This mention of the Areopagus. This was kind of the secular equivalent, the Greek equivalent to uh, the Sanhedrin. So the Jews had a ruling council of old men 
Well, the Greeks had a council too. It's called the Areopagus. And when you think back to history, that there was actually a, a great teacher in, among the Greeks, the philosophers of Socrates. Some of you read some of his books and his works. You, you, you think about the field of philosophy. You, you can't touch philosophy without learning uh, about and from Socrates. And at one point, the same Areopagus council, they condemned Socrates to death by poison hemlock because they said, you are teaching impiety to our Greek youth. So as great of a man, a teacher as Socrates, he was condemned to death. And you imagine when this Areopagus council is calling Paul saying, hey, we heard you were teaching in the marketplace and you're teaching about some strange deities. We want to know what you're teaching. Essentially, they were calling him to account. They're not ready yet to condemn him, but they've had witnesses. Hey, this guy's teaching some strange things. And for them, Jesus and the resurrection the way they understood it is Jesus was this male God, and then the resurrection is this female God. So they're like, hey, you're teaching strange deities. They didn't quite understand. Here we think about some of the things that Paul was getting at them about. We're going to skip ahead here in these verses to verse 30. He addresses the matter of their religiosity or, or their superstition. The word used can have a dual meaning. So it seems like he's saying you're very religious. He very well might have been saying you're, you're actually superstitious. But he, he points ahead and says these, the times of ignorance God overlooked. It's not as if God's saying, you know what? I'm not going to judge you for any of those sins. They, they, they will be accounted for. But he's saying that God has overlooked them in the sense that he's saying God has not stricken you dead. He hasn't come out to condemn you already. Very much the same as in Romans 3.25, that in God's forbearance, the sins committed beforehand were left unpunished until the time of Christ would come. We ought to understand this is the very character of God, that uh, our God is not very quick to bring about justice, to bring about punishment for people. He's slow to do so. He gives plenty of time for people to change their ways, to repent. Here, you think about when justice finally comes, when a man or a woman ends up before the Lord Jesus Christ at the great throne of judgment. Nobody can claim, God, you gave me no opportunity to repent and believe upon you. No one can claim that. God is one who is very patient. He desires that all would come to repentance. Here, we think about this matter of the command in verse 30. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. This command demonstrates the very impartiality of God. God is impartial. Here, you think back to earlier in Acts, the apostle Peter preaching to a predominantly Jewish audience. The crowds were Jews. And he can speak to them about the Old Testament. He quotes uh, the Psalms written by David. And then when the Jews were cut to the heart, they asked, what shall we do? What was Peter's answer? Same thing. You should repent. Well, he said repent and then receive baptism. But the bottom line is, to the Jews, God commands repentance. 
To the Gentiles, God commands repentance. There is no partiality with our God. We think about this very matter of repentance. You realize that repentance is such a neglected and misunderstood doctrine. We always have whispering in our ears from Satan. Satan saying, oh, uh, repentance is such a minor thing. Uh, You know, all it is is at the end of your life, all you really have to say in repentance is, I'm sorry. And maybe I'm really, really sorry. And you're off. So you don't have to repent today or tomorrow. Just wait to the end of your life. Do not believe those lies. Repentance is not a minor thing. It's not a minor thing that you can simply do in the future. It's, it's like saying to someone, hey, you know, you, you do exercise, right? So uh, you have this couch potato uh, standing next to this uh, CrossFit workout man and, and this uh, marathon runner. Well, you look at the combination. Uh, Satan can go out and say, hey, this couch potato, hey, you know what? His exercise, her exercise, just a sum of, of all these little decisions they make. So, so this guy did 30 minutes of CrossFit. This person ran an hour. That's it, not a big deal. You, you, can, you can catch up on that. Well, that's a lifetime. It's a lifestyle. So the Lord use, chooses to use means. He uses the means of prayer, uh, the study of God's word. He uses the means of, of corporate worship when we gather. He uses the means of the sacraments. God uses means. And we should never be in a situation where, de- where we're despising the means that God has given us. That means, that means requires time. It requires investment. Even a simple matter of spending time uh, praying uh, privately and with your, with your wife, with your children, with your family. These aren't small things. You, you might say, oh, it's just five minutes here, ten minutes there. That's exactly what Satan wants you to think. It's not a big deal, but... It is a big deal. So also is repentance. Here, you think about what repentance is. It begins with an admission, an acknowledgement of our sin. We must call it what it is. Sin is sin. We must be able to confess that. It's not an offense simply to man. It's an offense to God. Here, it doesn't end there. Some people think that repentance means, hey, yeah, I, you're right, that was sin. But then they keep on doing it. They accept it. They acknowledge it's sin, but I'm going to keep doing it. Well, there's also a grieving over sin, a sorrow for sin. It's an acknowledgement that sin separates you and me from God. Sin separates us from God. It breaks fellowship with God. That there must be in our grieving of our sin, a hating of our sins. Here, we we think about some of the things that indicate that repentance is lacking. If you are more troubled by the sins of others against you than you are of your own sins against God, I'm going to tell you your sins or your repentance is lacking. If you think other people sinned against you and you're troubled by that and you're not troubled by your sins against God, then your repentance is not complete. It's not, it's not where it needs to be. You must be troubled by your own sins against God. That's part of your grieving, your grieving of your sins. Here, there's also the matter of forsaking your sins. You must turn away from them. You must give them up. When you look at people who are hardened, what are they saying? 
They're only saying one thing. Jesus, no matter how much I love you, I love my sins more. And so I'm not going to repent. So there are people who claim to love Jesus, but their love wasn't enough to say, you know, I'm willing to part with these sins. Here, forsaking sins. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. The Apostle Paul describes the, the, the Thessalonians like this. He says, how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God. So as, as they heard the message that was preached, what they're saying in Thessalonica was the same thing they needed to say in Athens was, hey, we're not worshiping the true God. This, this is falsehood and we need to stop doing it. And we're going to tear away from it. And we're going to worship the true and living God, who is our Lord Jesus. There must be this desire for new obedience. There must be a willingness to set aside a previous way and adopt a new way. And you can think about all, all the things that can come in our way as excuses. Well, this is what everyone's doing. Well, how was how that gate? How was that path that leads to life? Is it big? Is it wide? No. We're told that the path that leads to life, the gate is small and the path is narrow. So we ought not to be concerned with what everyone else is doing. Well, this is what my ancestors have all done. Well, the Lord calls us that we would change. We must be ready to change because he commands it. Here, you think about this new obedience. It requires a letting go of one thing and a clinging to another. Ephesians 4.28 let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So the thief is supposed to stop stealing, and then he's supposed to labor, and then he's supposed to share with those who have genuine need. And so also, idolatry. We must give up these idols, we must destroy them, and, and then we must start worshiping the true and the living God. Here. You think about this grace of repentance. You think about how difficult it is. There's such huge obstacles. You think about men. We're creatures of habit. And sinful man is hard-hearted and stiff-necked. How can we change? You think about the power. The power to change. The ability to change. You think about the desire to change. It seems like all of those are lacking when it comes to a man who is set in his ways without the Holy Spirit. Jesus described this very principle. John 8, 34. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. That The sin nature has mastery over us. There is not a willingness to be free. Or if there's a desire, there's an inability you think about what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives that gift of repentance. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins, Acts 5.31. It's only God who gives this gift of repentance so that when someone is willing to change, it's because eyes have been opened, hearts have been softened so that we might say, I'm going to stop doing that. And I'm going to start worshiping and following Jesus Christ. Here, there's also the warning that repentance is not something you once did at conversion. 
Oh, yeah, I did that once. No, repentance is something we must do throughout our lives every single day. Every hour, whatever it takes, that, that we must be repenting all the time. That outside of regular repentance, there's no growth. Repentance always accompanies and exists with saving faith. That if there is saving faith, there will be repentance present. If there is genuine repentance, there will be saving faith. Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. Saving faith cannot exist without genuine repentance. That if we're going to believe in Jesus Christ, if we're going to receive his promises, that sinners who come to him and believe in him will receive the forgiveness of sins. And we must also be those who forsake our sins. And that's called repentance. So this is the first point. It required repentance. We have a second point, a righteous reckoning. The second half of verse 31. Uh, sorry, first half of verse 31. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. So we see this first part. Because he has fixed a day. This addresses the question of when. When there will be a reckoning. It is a fixed day. God the Father has fixed a day for judgment. Here, think about the scriptures, 2 Peter 2, 9 and 10. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Ah, this is a reminder. This is a reminder not only to children. It refers to you also, but it refers to each one of us, the children, if you despise authority, Besides your parents, okay, hey, that's a warning for you. But it's a warning for every one of us. Because who loves authority? Who cherishes authority in our nature? None of us do. We all despise authority. Here, this day is fixed, meaning that the day is set in time. It won't change. This fixed day is also not known to anyone but the Father. Can you imagine that? Matthew 24, verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, not the Son, but the Father only. So here, we're, tolling, we're being told that the man who was raised from the dead, Jesus Christ, who is the judge of the living and the dead, he will come back, but he doesn't know when he'll be sent back. Meaning, the very person who will come to judge, we're told even he doesn't know when the Father will say, you know, it's time, you will go. And then you, you think about how all kinds of these false teachers, you, you, you want to you see them raise two hands of the, I'm the false teacher. You ask them, hey, when will Jesus come back? He, he gives you a date and, and, a, and a, a month and a year. And it's like, they're saying, hey, I'm the false teacher. Because, hey, if the Son of God doesn't know the Father alone, then how can, a, how can a sinful man know? Everyone wants to know the secret things of God, right? Everyone wants to know, hey, tell me the secret things. Hey, uh, I, I want to know uh, these details about my future. Well, the question is, are you trusting God with you? Uh, oh, how old will I live? When will I die? How many children will I have? Uh, who will I marry? Uh, what, what job should I get? All, all these questions. Well, the question is, are you trusting God with your life? Obey the word that he has revealed to us. 
with secret things belong to God, but what he has revealed to us, these we have, we ought to obey them. The day of judgment, this fixed day, will come suddenly and without warning. Matthew 24, 38 and 39. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. It's a fixed day. You and I cannot know it. The Son, Jesus Christ, doesn't know when he will be sent back. The angels in heaven don't know it. So the answer is, let's not try to find out. God in his wisdom withheld it. Just think about what would have happened if they knew back in the 4th century or the 13th century, hey, Jesus is not coming back for at least another you know, several centuries. What would they have done? They would have just sat on their rear ends and done nothing. That would have been the temptation because of sinners. That's how we are. He doesn't tell us. He tells us always to be ready. So instead of trying to figure out the day, the time, you think about when Jesus comes back, well, there's also the time of our death. We just don't know that either. So we're told always to be ready for Christ's return. That means that we must repent and believe upon Jesus Christ and trust in him now. It means we must trust in him today. Here, we answer the question of when. It's a fixed day and we don't know when. What about the what? On what on which he will judge the world there in verse 30 because he has fixed day on which he will judge the world so what will happen what will happen there will be judgment second Corinthians 5:10 for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done whether good or bad the judgment seat of Christ everyone must answer Deeds done in the body, whether good or bad. We think about what Christ will judge on that last day. What will be placed there? What will be the documents against us? Here, very easy to think about the sins of commission. It's the, the things God has forbidden us from doing. These are the things that men tend to think about as those are the wicked things. But you realize that on that judgment day, there will also be addressed and condemned the sins of omission. Well, what do you mean by that? Sins of omission are, are the good things that God requires you to do. Someone in need of help, showing kindness and love, giving the word of encouragement. These are sins of omission. And how often we commit these. We think about, hey, we're just trying to avoid those evil sins. No, the sins of omission are also those he commands us to do good and we haven't done it. Christ will come to judge. Matthew twelve thirty six. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. Every idle word, every careless word. I'll give you an example. Give you an example. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. The name of God must never be used frivolously, must never be used as a curse word. In our homes, with our children, with our family members, we ought to watch for that. I warn you, for some people, it just becomes so easy, they don't even know they do it. But a careless word, 
using the Lord's name in vain. That, hey, this is, a safe, this is a safety device that we can run to him and save. So we call upon him in faith. We call upon him in our fears and, and our doubts and our dangers. We can't use that frivolously. Here, down to every idle word, even down to the thoughts and intentions of the heart, Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the divisions of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Meaning even down to evil thoughts, God will judge. Here, you think about what will happen on judgment day. We're told what will happen. There will be a separation of those on the left and those on the right. Matthew 25, 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Matthew 25, 46. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Here, when you think about judgment... Is there anyone who is righteous? The answer is no, not one. The only who are righteous are those who have the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. And the only way that you and I get that righteousness is we believe upon him, we trust in him. By faith we receive the free offer of salvation that by faith our sins are transferred to Jesus Christ and his account. That this is, uh, this is a ledger, an accounting process that God takes our sin, puts it on Jesus on the cross. And that his perfect righteousness of the life that he lived is credited to you, to you and me and we receive that by faith. You ask, what's going on in the gospel? What's going on in the gospel is God is commanding sinners. You've rebelled against me. You've rebelled against me. Even back to Adam and Eve, all your ancestors, we all go back to them. And he says, I have every right to condemn you, you rebels. You think about rebels against a king. You've rebelled against me. You've assaulted me. And and here we think about what God is saying is, hey, I'm not only going to be willing to to forgive your sin, I freely offered up my son as the sacrifice to pay for your sin. And then all of his righteousness, he says, I'm going to give to you. And all of your sins, I'm going to place on him on the cross. And then the very riches that he obtained in his obedience, even to death on the cross, God says he will freely share with you so that you are no longer rebels. You are now sons and daughters of mine. Can you believe this good news? That those who could say, God, all I have is my wickedness. All I have is my filthy, filthy rags. That's all I can bring to you. And God says, no. I have something far, far better planned for you. Righteousness of Christ freely given to sinners. Now we think about how how will Christ judge? There in verse 31. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. He will judge the world in righteousness. Christ is one who will judge justly. Many people think that on that whatever special day, everything will fall together, right? So if someone is planning for a wedding, 
He has no clue how to dance, but he's going to say, you know what, my wedding day, suddenly I, I'm, I'm going to become Fred Astaire. I'm going to know how to dance. The answer is no. No. Anyone who does any training knows that when that day comes, you will fall down to your level of if you're training or probably 50% below it, right? So it's not going to happen. But you think about Christ judging. He's going to judge in righteousness. And, and it's not as if Christ is saying, I'm going to get my act together and that when that judgment day comes, I'm suddenly going to judge justly, righteously. No. This is, this is Jesus, who he is. He can't be anything other than justice and righteousness. It's not merely his method of judging on that day. That's who he is. He defines justice and righteousness. It's his holy character. Here, when you think about Abraham in that scene, Abraham's reasoning with God about the destruction of, of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 18.25. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? And the answer is, God does deal justly. So does his son, who will judge. Here, we also ask the question, who will be judged? The world will be subject to judgment. Every man, woman, child is called to repentance in verse 30. So also every man, woman, and child will also be called to judgment. In this world, there's all kinds of understandings about exceptions, allowances, uh, exemptions, nepotism, friends in high places. Hey, how did you get out of being drafted? Well, I know so-and-so. I know these people on the draft board or whatever. The world understands exceptions and exemptions. There are none. There are none when it comes to the judgment by Jesus Christ. There will be no such weaseling out from the judgment of Christ. So this is the second point, the righteous reckoning. We have the third point, the resurrected ruler, in the second half of verse 31. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this... He has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So by a man whom he has appointed. This is who will do the judging. It is Jesus Christ. John chapter 5 verse 22. For the father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the son. And why is it that our Lord Jesus is suited to judge? Hebrews 4.15 for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Christ, his judgment, will be in every way just. He will even take into consideration the weaknesses of men. Because here, we're told that he has a body like us. He knows weakness. He, he knows rejection. He knows being hated and despised. And we're told that he will take all those things into an account. But he is that one rule. He is the perfect standard. He, he is the, uh, uh, he's the one who breaks the curve. Right? You, you think about exams, that uh, you can get 50% on an exam and still get an A. Right? You can still get an A with 50%. But here, Jesus, he's the, he's the 100% marker. Right? He's... You think about the college class, 
They all despise that one guy who, instead of getting the 50%, he gets the 90%. He throws the curve off. Well, Jesus is the one who's that perfect 100%. And unless we're meeting his mark, we fail. That he's the one who takes into consideration all these matters. He understands them. Here we think about, why is it significant that Jesus was raised from the dead? We're told there in verse 31, that he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The fact that Jesus was raised from the dead is proof that he is the Son of God. Romans 1, 4 who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. His raising from the dead declares him, this is the Son of God. Christ's resurrection was proof that Jesus is holy and without sin. And that means that you and I have a perfect Savior. If you remain in the grave, then it meant that he was a sinner like every other man who rests in the grave. But because he was raised in three days, it was proof we have a perfect Savior. There is a spotless, sinless sacrifice that God provided for us, and his name is Jesus. Christ's resurrection is proof that you and I have a sufficient Savior. Romans 4.25, he was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. That because Jesus humbled himself even to the point of death, even death on a cross, that God exalted him to the highest place, above all rule and power and authority, that he was condemned by wicked men. But God raised him from the dead and will send him back to judge. He will be that final judge, that those who condemned him, that they will be condemned. Those who rejected him will also be condemned. Here, you think about how and why Christ's resurrection is important for us. Because if Christ didn't resurrect, then there's no such thing as a resurrection. Perhaps some of you are old enough to realize that you're not going to last forever. You know, you know when that was, right? It was probably you hit about 37 when, or, or maybe it wasn't, sorry, maybe it was 27. You, you get up, oh, man, oh, boy, oh, that, that hurts, right? And you say, oh, man, this, this body of mine is going to fall apart someday. Well, whatever that is, you realize you're not going to last forever. This earthly tent fall apart. But we're hopeful that though our bodies are decaying, inwardly we're being renewed day by day, correct? So we look forward that we're going to be raised anew. It's not going to be the same body. It won't be the body that that just went into the grave, because that, that body does decay, right? No matter how good of a uh, you know, concrete block and then the casket, it, the body will still decay. Bottom line is, we look forward that we will be raised anew. We will be raised imperishable. We look forward to it because Jesus, our Lord, was raised first. So this is the third point. The fourth point, regular responses. In verses 32 to 34. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, 
But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Some mocked at the resurrection. There in verse 32. Here, it's not, uh, they just made a, one passing comment. The, the description of the mockery, uh, imperfect, meaning that it's an ongoing thing. It was this, this ongoing mockery that happened. They mocked about the resurrection, meaning they kept going on regarding the Apostle Paul. They kept jeering at him. You think about the Greeks. They had an understanding of the immortality of the soul. What they didn't have was any idea of a physical resurrection. They didn't have that. This is why, for them, they would consider it very important if someone died that you try to preserve their body. That if the body was eaten by wild animals or fish, they didn't know what to do with that. To them, resurrection was foolishness, and this is why they were mocking Paul. But if you think about how, if we're going to believe in God, then this God must be greater than our worst problem. And our worst problem is our sin that results in our condemnation and death. So if your God is not greater than your biggest problem, that is death, then he's too small. You need to find a better God. What we have in Jesus Christ is one who is far greater than death. He conquered, he conquered death. He conquered Satan at the cross. And then when he returns, he will conquer death. But the sting will be removed. Here, we think about how those mock at the resurrection. They mock about all kinds of things. Second, Second Peter 2 talks about the, the mock at, hey, what are you talking about Christ is going to return? How many, how many millennia has it been? He hasn't returned yet. Well, there's warnings to them. Hey, listen, I don't think you quite understand God's timeline and his patience that he wants all men to repent and believe upon Jesus Christ. That let us not mock. Let us believe his word and his promises and understand God's ways and his, his slowness, right? It's not, it's not his, his it, he's not unable to act. He's una, not unable to fulfill his word. He is. He's patient that men would come to repentance. Here also, there was another group. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So were they saying, hey, that's important. Uh, we're busy right now and hey, come back and talk to us some other time. Or, or was this just a polite way to say, sorry, we're, we're rejecting you. Right? Whatever's the case. You think about how there's not an urgency in them. Many are the same way today. Oh, you want to tell me about Jesus? Hey, I'm interested. But uh, I, I'm not interested in committing my life to him until after I retire. Or after I advance my career. Or raise my kids. Or after I become old and gray. Because each time you get to that next uh, that next milestone, well, I, I got to get this. Then I got to get that. And then I'll commit my life to Christ. I'll be straight with you. If Christ is worth following for you, then he's worth following today. Right now, not tomorrow. Satan's day is always tomorrow. Tomorrow will never come. And you're not promised tomorrow because this very night, your life might be required of you. 
here. You think about today is the day of salvation. If you have not committed your life to Christ, you must do so today. You must do so now. Don't talk about later. And there you see in verse 34, But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Here we think about how just because they're regular responses. So you have people who mock and despise, and then you have some who, you know, they, don't, they seem kind of ambivalent on the surface, and then you have some who believe. And we consider these kind of like the three possible responses. But it's regular for those who believe, but it's not normal. It's not ordinary. It requires the power and the work of God to give new life. It's only when there's new spiritual life that men have their eyes open to see and hear. And some people ask, well, what does that look like when someone has been given spiritual life? Well, it's very simple. simple thing is that they hear this word and they say exactly from John 10 is that I hear the voice of my master speaking. They hear the voice of Jesus Christ and say, that is my master who's talking. I will believe it. I will obey it. I will surrender, unconditional surrender. Lay down my arms and I will follow Jesus Christ. This is not, or, this is not ordinary. It's supernatural. Here, you think about what God does. Even, even on this council of men, even in the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, where they're not believers, God, God is one who shows himself power. Even in Caesar's household, that there was Caesar who was killing Christians, lighting them on fire to light his path. Hey, this is a nice source of, of fuel for burning. But even in Caesar's household, there were those who believed that God shows himself powerful. Hey, there's not a place that cannot be cracked. There's not a heart too dark that he cannot save. And we're thankful that God has people all over the world. And every group of people. This is what missions is all about. Here we think about how this word could be a reminder to us. It's a reminder to us. The Great Commission. When you're provoked by others, don't be looking down upon them. Have compassion upon them. This is where you and I are, or were, walking in darkness. That we were shown the great light. Be that light to others. Desire that they would also know Jesus Christ. You think also about this judgment to come. Are you hardened in your ways? Is there sin in your life? Are you deceiving yourself? You realize that God is never deceived. He sees through all of it, even down to the very recesses of our hearts. That if we have not done so, we should repent even today. And that we should commit to him new obedience, what he has called us to. That we might be faithful to follow him. Here also, it's a reminder to us that even as we struggle with disease and ultimately death, we have here a promise of eternal life. The little injuries, the little ailments will eventually get us. But we look forward to the day when Jesus returns and he will raise us up anew. This is the hope that we have. We must be planning for the future, not just for your retirement, not just for a few decades away, 
you must be thinking about eternity. What you have here, what you don't have here, in your 106, 95, 81 years, whatever, we're not going to look back in eternity and say, you know what, if only I had a little more net worth. You're not going to say that. Think about your treasures in heaven. Think about planning for eternity. How important that is. Where you will spend eternity. And that's determined by, that's reflected by the decisions that you make every day today. Following Jesus Christ, trusting in Him, repenting of your sins. May this be our desire. Let's go to our God together in prayer. Our Lord God, we thank you, Father.